Hello, and welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. I'm Sally Gentry. And today, guys, we are focusing on the miracle of transplant. Joining us in studio, a doctor and a recipient mom. We're going to break it down. Amazing. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the complexities in transplantation. What happens when things don't go exactly as planned? And then we're going to talk about the top five phrases that tend to turn people off and what you can say instead. Did I just say it? I, I might have all five. Did I just say it? Is that why you brought it up? <laughs> yeah. Oh, now I'm nervous. Why are you looking now at me? I'm nervous. <laughs> More to come, guys. Our goal is to get you sharing this podcast because it's filled with information that we use to make life happen. We try to make it as easy as possible. We want you guys to rate and subscribe to us. We're easy to find. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or whatever your favorite podcast app might be. And we're also now on Spotify. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's true. That's new. I like that, guys. And we know social media is big, especially in 2019. Like us on our Facebook page, The Gifted Life Podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, at Gifted Life Pod. We'd surely appreciate it. You guys ready to get started? Yes. Lots to get to. Here we go. on the Gifted Life podcast, we are talking about the complexities of transplant when things don't go as planned. We have a specific example for you guys. Um, This unfolded on social media. I know that in 2019, we've been talking about social media a lot. Seems like we're all connected there, right? So about four years ago, um, I see that there's this beautiful baby in Central in Louisiana who's born, Briggs Elliser, cute as can be. But Briggs Elliser had a liver disease. So he needed a liver and he got one. So I'm following this story and then there's celebration and then there's a complication. And so he's going to need another liver. So there's the wait and then he got another liver and then there's a complication. So three times and I'm thinking, oh, this, this young mom is going through this, this family, and I'm riding these roller coasters with her. Um, her name is Brittany. Um, her son's name is Briggs Elliser. He is surviving and thriving today. He's four Brittany joins us in the studio now. Hi, Miss Britt. Hi. Four years ago seems like so long ago. So long, but so close as well. <laughs> yes. So, so many milestones that you yes. wouldn't have had had it not been for these heroes and these clinicians who thankfully know what they're doing, right? Right. So what's Briggs doing now? What are some of the cool things? Um, we just went to Disney World. Yeah. We did the transplant games. We met the donor family. We had a busy 2018. So, <laughs> ah, so he's doing Fun. all of these Wonderful things, reaching these milestones that four years ago we weren't sure we were going to see. But thankfully, we have these clinicians who can make life happen. It's and amazing. For, yeah, unfortunately, Laura, we've got one of these clinicians with us here today who happened to be heavily involved in uh, multiple of uh, Briggs operations. Mm-hmm. We've got Dr. John Seal with us, who is an abdominal transplant surgeon out of Oshner Health System in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. And he is right here in studio with us. Thanks for coming, Doc. It's a pleasure. Thanks. How do you feel about this guy, man? I'm Britt. <laughs> oh, I, I like him. <laughs> <laughs> He's pretty cool, dude, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, tell us about the weight. Did you know about donation? when they start telling you all these things, biliary atresia, liver disease, transplant. So tell us where you are as a mom. Yeah. So he was a month old or no, I guess he was a little bit younger at that point. He was about two weeks old. Um, and we first heard the words biliary atresia. And at that visit with that uh, GI doctor, 
he said he mentioned transplant and that was the first time I was like wait what like what what are we gonna do and he said don't worry about that that's a long way away um we're, we have some things that we can do beforehand and hopefully he'll grow and he won't need a transplant for a very long time so we had a major surgery at one month old and then um that's kind of when you kind of watch and see if, you know, if you are going to get to grow a little bit older and wait to have a transplant or if you're going to need a transplant sooner rather than later. And just like everything in Briggs's life, it seems like uh, we need things sooner rather than later. So we got started to do testing probably around four months old for to see if he was eligible to have a liver transplant. And so I'm sure just knowing you, you're doing the research. Yes. trying to figure everything out. <laughs> What's happening, right? Mm-hmm. Did you know about donation? Were you pro-donation? No, I had actually um, removed the heart from my license mm-hmm. when I was pregnant with Briggs because um, I believed in the myths that they weren't going to save me if something happened. So I removed it and um, put it back on very quickly <laughs> right afterwards. So <laughs> my goodness. All right. So um, Joe, we're going to bring you and Dr. John in now to talk about uh, these complexities and how do we get to a four-year-old thriving boy from all these complications? Right. Yeah. One of my questions, uh, Doc, is I know, you know, in Briggs' journey, from what I understand, his first transplant was from what we call a split liver donation. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and the differences between the, the different types? So one of the challenges we have with pediatric transplantation is obviously most of our patients are very, very small. And a vast majority of the donors are adults. And those livers, those whole livers are too big to transplant into small infants and even into younger children. And so if we relied only upon pediatric deceased donors, that donor pool would be extremely small. So in the late 1980s and uh, early 1990s, we developed a technique where you can separate a small piece of the liver and transplant that piece of liver into a recipient. And that has really opened up a huge opportunity to transplant very small patients, particularly uh, infants like Briggs. So this type of technique, I I guess you guys have perfected it to the point where it's uh, can... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, so perfected. I mean, every, every single operation you ever do in transplant uh, brings you a great deal of humility, as, as this story illustrates. But we have made a lot of progress uh, with a lot of the techniques and tools available to do this operation with a very high rate of success. And there are two main categories of split liver transplantation, uh, living donor split liver transplantation and deceased donor. And there are some advantages and disadvantages to each. The real advantage to a living donor is that you can be very selective about the the donor with respect to anatomy and size. So in this case, we take potential uh, someone who's willing to donate a piece of their liver. They go through a series of tests. A lot of that involves imaging of the liver because we have to make sure that the, the blood vessels that go into the liver and that drain out of the liver are suitable to split in half, okay? So about one out of every four donors that gets evaluated for a living donation is suitable. But in those situations, we can actually schedule the operation. We can do it in a very controlled setting. And there may even be some immunologic benefits to having, uh, say, a mother donate to an infant. So that is something that we see quite a bit in the pediatric world. 
The problem, the sort of Achilles heel of that is that the blood vessels on living donor split livers end up being very, very small, and they're very prone to thrombosis. And, uh, and, and the reason for that is what, what, why would that be different from a deceased Yeah, donor? no, it's a great question. Uh, the reason is that you, when you do a split liver in a living donor, you have to keep the remaining liver alive right. for the donor, right? And so you have to preserve blood flow to the remaining portion, and you have to have adequate blood flow to the piece you're going to transplant. So that's what becomes challenging. And so in those situations, you have to cut the artery much higher up than you would for a deceased donor. And at that point, it's much, much smaller. So a lot of pediatric centers will do that under a microscope. They'll have plastic and reconstructive surgeons come in and and help with that part of the operation. And one of the things that's really helped advance that part of the field is, is the really robust network of pediatric transplant centers in the United States. Uh, one of those consortiums is called SPLIT, Studies in Pediatric uh, Liver and Intestine Transplantation. And Brittany and I are both uh, heavily involved in that. And one of the benefits is you get shared practices. And mm-hmm. so if you relied only upon your single center's experience, you would have a much smaller experience we go to these conferences, you learn best practices, and that's allowed us to advance living donor split liver transplant. So the, the second alternative and what Briggs had was a split liver from a deceased donor. And there's a couple of advantages to using a split liver from a deceased donor. Basically, this operation goes a lot like a, a standard organ recovery from a deceased donor. Um, It needs to be a relatively young and healthy adult, and we do a CT scan just like we would in a living donor to map the blood vessels and make sure they're suitable to split. But the main advantage is when we do the split, we're able to recover extra vessels from the liver as well as additional blood vessels uh, from the deceased donor uh, that we can use for that vascular reconstruction. So from a technical standpoint, it gives you a lot more options and allows you you to do potentially a safer anastomosis. In fact, we just did a very complex recipient who had a pediatric recipient who had situs inversus, meaning that all the organs in the abdomen were on the opposite side that they normally are and the child had biliary atresia and required a split liver transplant. So in that case, we were very reluctant to do a living donor because we didn't have as many vascular reconstruction options. So the deceased donor uh, split in that case worked out well. So the success rates uh, for each of these talking deceased donor versus uh, living donor? Sure, sure. Writ large, uh, the success rates are great for both. Okay. okay, so when you compare that to a standard organ transplant, they're at least as good and in some cases better. If you can get through the early technical phase, there's some, they're very high quality livers and there's uh, some potential with immunologic matching that allows those grafts to have lower rates of rejection less injury, and uh, last longer. So uh, some of the complications that are common with a split livers, I'm assuming I know, you know, from talking to Brittany that Briggs split liver, his first donor mm-hmm. liver was lasted for four days. Mm-hmm. Uh, were some of these the common complications that, that you guys usually see? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the first thing that I would say is, fortunately, none of the complications are common. So they still end up being relatively rare, but certainly when they happen, it's a really big deal. Mm-hmm. It's potentially life-threatening. Uh, and we have a system in place to make sure we address him with the highest priority. With Briggs's first uh, split liver, things initially went very well. In fact, all the blood flow and the ultrasounds looked good. The liver itself reperfused very nicely. Uh, the initial function of the graph was very good. The complication that we ran into on the first liver is related to the blood flow through the portal vein. And in liver disease, particularly biliary atresia, the liver scars. And when the liver scars, there's a lot of resistance to blood flow through the liver. So you get something called portal hypertension or very high blood pressure in the portal vein. And the way the body responds to that is that it forms collaterals or it forms extra vessels that bypass the liver and go back to the heart. And that brings that pressure closer to normal, okay? Now, when we do the liver transplant, we take that diseased, high-resistance liver, we take that out of the circuit, if you will. It's really a plumbing phenomenon here. Mm -hmm. And then we put back into the system a graft that's totally normal and even a little bit bigger in size than the original one. So the resistance to flow goes way down. So it's really easy for blood to flow through the liver. And that means it tends to flow a little slower. And when blood flows slow, it does have a tendency to form clots. And so there are a number of things that we tried in those first couple of days to augment that flow, to make it a little more robust. But ultimately, it was a flow phenomenon that led to that portal vein clotting. And when that happened, and we weren't able to correct it after a couple of surgeries, uh, then the best option is to have a a new graft with a different flow physiology. So at that point, we've got a a beautiful little baby boy who's just gone through this major surgery. And now we're a couple days out. Guys have have done a couple different surgeries to try to get the clots uh, broken up and get the blood flow by, back to normal. So, uh, and you mentioned, you know, looking at possibly uh, another transplant. So what's the process there? Does he get put closer to the top of the list now that he doesn't have a lot of time or does he get put back at the bottom? Yeah, that's a really great question, Joe. I'm glad that you asked it. One of the things I think we should be really proud of as a transplant community is that we have designed a system Uh, with the top priority being keeping people alive. And so, and and that's important for everyone, but in my opinion, it's particularly important for children because they're technically challenging operations. And uh, if you do run into a complication, uh, we wanna make sure we make that the absolute priority. So when Briggs was listed for his second transplant, he got a category uh, 1A, which is a very high priority. It basically goes to the top of the list or any options in the region. And that is basically a way to ensure that uh, whatever the first available opportunity to safely retransplant him is afforded to him for every donor. All right, Brittany. So all these emotions and feelings are coming back up from four years ago from me just reading on social media what you were going through. You were living it. So tell us what you were, what you were thinking, what you were feeling. Yeah, it, it's kind of a weird spot to be in because I know what has to happen in order for the surgery to happen if we're dealing with deceased donors especially. And so um, for us, it was always, you know, kind of in our mind, in our back mind of, you know, this has to happen in order for my son to stay alive. But 
on top of it, um, you know, we knew that this was the only hope for him at having a normal life or, you know, even getting to stay with us for a few years. You know, that was our only option at this point. So um, we went into surgery with him smiling, uh, flirting with the nurses that night, um, just being a normal little six-month-old baby. You know, I remember holding him. I remember looking at him and just thinking, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. We're here, and we're going to make it. We knew we were in the best place that we could be in. We had done our research. We felt like we were in the right spot. We sent him off with, you know, a hug and a kiss, and we just trusted that these surgeons and these nurses were going to take the absolute best care of our baby, and we knew that they were. Um, just from meeting with them before and stuff, we knew that they were going to do everything possible to save him. So when we got to see him afterwards, it was a joyful occasion. I mean, we got to extubate him pretty quickly right after surgery. We got to hold him. We got to feed him. All was going well. I remember we had gone back to our apartment that we were staying in, and uh, we got a call from Oshner that day saying, uh, you need to come back. We're going to have to take him into surgery. And at that point, um, I don't I don't think we knew. I mean, we didn't know what was going to happen. So, um, But thinking back on it, not knowing that you were not going to see your son awake for the next uh, month and a half always chokes me up still four years later. And just that last time getting to hold him before we brought him back into that surgery to try to repair and reestablish blood flow was probably the hardest day just because, you know, we'd gone from such a, a low to such a high high to now back to such a low. And we were so scared and didn't know what was going to happen, but we still had complete faith that it was all going to work out. All right. So now you're facing a third transplant? Yeah, so uh, we had had the second transplant at that point. Um, we had had, you know, we were back to our high high and then uh, finding out shortly thereafter that he was relisted again was sort of a, a low again, but um, still having faith that it was all going to work out and um, still trusting that he was going to keep fighting and he was going to stay well enough to receive a transplant because we do know that there's all kind of things that have to happen for him in order to be well enough to have a transplant. So even though we were facing those obstacles, we still felt like it could happen. So Eric, from her perspective, um, you remember this doctor? Oh, coming in? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Won't forget it. Yeah. Sure. Right. And so then were you part of that delivering that news that we have to go back in? And <clears throat> I, I was I was a part of the team and I, I was involved in the uh, donor operation for the uh, the second surgery. And sort of to go back to the point we were talking about prioritizing options for, for kids who, who need an urgent retransplant, the challenge from the surgeon's perspective is that, particularly when you've had a, a second graft that, that is struggling, is uh, you want to get them transplanted quickly, but you really have to make sure that it's a perfect graft. And that can be really difficult because grafts don't come labeled as perfect and non-perfect. They don't come, uh, you know, labeled as will work and will not work. There's a whole spectrum of variables that you have to consider very carefully. And when you have a kid who's this sick, there's a real urgency to it. And uh, it can be really, really challenging to make those decisions. You obviously want to do the right thing for the kid. You don't want to wait too long, but you also don't want to rush into something. And for his second transplant, uh, that was really challenging because we, we really had a carefully evaluated the donor and uh, was, by all the things that we measure, was really a high-quality donor. We did the split liver for that as well. Uh, technically, it went fine, and all the blood vessels were fine. 
And unfortunately, uh, when we did the transplant, it, it fell into a category called primary non-function, um, uh, which is particularly rare in, and I think, the pediatric world because we often have you know, really high-quality donors. But occasionally you do see it, and it's not always well understood. So that's what put us in the, in the situation that Brittany was referring to, where you've got a second graft that went in, and your, your hopes are really high, mm-hmm. and then you're really surprised, uh, the medical team very surprised, that the graft was struggling and obviously devastated that you're, you're back in the same situation. But this second transplant did enable... Briggs to live long enough to get that third transplant, which is now is which is still yep, the still liver kidding. that he's gotten. No, <laughs> yeah, which is the one <laughs> that's stuck. <laughs> right, right, right. And in uh, that's exactly right. And I think that's exactly the way to look at it. At the end of the day, the system worked, despite having uh, complications with the first two graphs. The remarkable gifts from the donors that made all three of these livers uh, possible is why Briggs is alive today. So that's really a credit first and foremost to those donors and their donor families, and then also to the infrastructure of transplant and the allocation system that we have in this country. Yep. So for those of you out there listening, I don't want to uh, to alarm anyone. (laughs) I know we are talking about complications and complexities in transplant. (laughs) The numbers, and Dr. Seal mentioned a couple times, are very, very low on this. You mentioned primary non-function, you know, when the organ doesn't function, when it's, it's transplanted, and the complications with the blood clotting. You know, we're talking very, very minuscule numbers, you know, considering the amount of, of patients that are on the waiting list and the success rates that are all with transplant. Right, that's exactly right. We're t- uh, the rate of PNF at most high volume experience centers is two percent or less. Uh, the rate of portal vein thrombosis in the same range, one to two percent, and I think even lower. Yeah. So to put those both, <laughs> the, the poor Briggs was able to <laughs> slip into the one to two percent yeah. on both on He's both unique. of those. He's meant to stand the, out, those, I guess. Those cases, yeah, yeah, and yeah, a, a vast majority of patients in, in liver transplant and in, in other organs as well have a very high rate of early success, very high rate of one and three year grass survival. So I, I'm listening to this, and it's these big terms and these major surgeries, and thank goodness these clinicians know what they're doing. But Brittany, when you talk about this guy, Dr. Seal, he's just a cool guy. Like, he, like right? Friends. Yes. He's part of the family, right? Yeah. Like you trust him with your, your baby. That's uh, amazing. It's not just a doctor-patient relationship. There seems to be more after all you guys have been through. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, whether he wants to be or not, he's part of our family. So. <laughs> she was so excited you were coming. Yeah. We're going to be in the same room. We're going to talk about oh. this. She wants to teach. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's he's definitely, um, you know, part of our family, just like all the other doctors um, and nurses, really, that worked on Briggs and kept not only him alive, but I feel like me alive as well, just because mm-hmm. at that point I was four months postpartum and, um, you know, not necessarily eating or, you know, just really stressed out. So I think it took a, a, a village to help us, and we definitely had that village behind us. Yeah, and you seem involved, like, not just medical side, but <laughs> supporting this family. Yeah, well, I mean, I, so that's, that's fantastic to hear. And Brittany knows that I have uh, extraordinary respect for all the things that she's doing for for transplant. And you do ask, uh, that question is really, really important 
because there's no way as a parent to ever imagine uh, what this would be like. And I'm a parent myself, and even though I live it from the doctor's side, I just can't imagine having to go through what Brittany and, and her family had to go through. And it's a real testament to the strength of of their own family to go through that. And you're exactly right. It isn't, uh, it isn't like a standard doctor-patient relationship. There is not just one doctor. There's multiple. There are nurses. There are techs. Uh, it's really a robust team of people providing for Briggs, and we're all a part of one big family. And it's also important to acknowledge that not every patient has that degree of yeah. support or you know, tools available to manage through this. And it, it, the, the psychosocial uh, professionals in the healthcare world are really important in helping provide that. Mm-hmm. Now, Brittany, uh, at the beginning, you said you had taken your heart off your license because you believed the mist. That was all way back then. <laughs> now we know you have the heart on your license. Right, let's check, right? Yes. Now you're one of our, our biggest advocates. And what I love about you is that when you go out, you honor all three of the donors. And you talk about these clinicians and you tell people, learn the facts. Because that's what you turn to. That's what you relied on, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so why do you do what you do? Why do you continue to press forward? Just knowing that there is support out there through other moms that have gone through this or other dads that have gone through this and support within our own liver community, that, that there's there's people who've been through what you're about to go through and you don't have to do it alone. Yeah, and I like you because you said they will, there will be complications. Yes. Push through <laughs> and then pay it forward. Mm-hmm. I love that because you're one of our, our biggest advocates and we appreciate that. Now, guys, we're going to continue this story on our next podcast. That's going to be episode 102. We will actually talk to one of the um, hero's moms that saved Briggs's life. That and more to come. We thank Brittany and Dr. Seal for joining us today. Here on the Gifted Life, turning people off is what we hope not to do, right? I sure hope not. But we're learning from Sally Joe. She said she had some phrases, phrases that turn people off. And she was looking in your direction. I'm assuming. Well, I'm thinking, what, come out of your of mouth. Five do I have? <laughs> all right, we are all ears, ma'am. Well, you know what, Lori and Joey? You know, sometimes we say things that we think we're sounding kind and empathetic yeah. and kind of in tune with what what we see going on for people, and then. I read this piece of research. I thought, oops, I am guilty of doing this too. Oh, no. Do you ever say something like, well, just calm down. It'll all be okay. Oh, no, that was this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody calm down. Calm down. Well, I say chill out. Chill out. Well, about the same thing. Because, you know, sometimes, now we're talking, we're not talking about your kids. Oh, okay. okay. We're we're talking about grown-ups. I get a big old pass, Joe. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, go ahead. We'll pass on that one. But, you know, when you're upset, you're just wanting to vent. And you just want somebody to hear what you got to say. And the last thing you want to hear is, well, just calm down. Mm-hmm. It'll be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, when you stop and think about that, and I thought, oh, my god, That would gosh. make me angry, though, if somebody would tell me well, that. Well, there I'm you go. I'm in the go. middle of a spill. Yeah. There <laughs> you go. Instead, what you can do is when somebody is saying all this, just say, is there something I can do to help? Mm-hmm. It changes the whole dynamics of that conversation. Okay? Makes sense, but yeah. I'm probably emotional by this point. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> and then I am really guilty of this. You're looking tired. 
I think I've said that to you before, oh, haven't you I? Oh, you did, Sally? I've gotten that a ton no. to myself. I bought new concealer because of month. that. <laughs> yeah. Now, see, I just thought that I was making a good observation. Oh. Well, I probably really was. But <laughs> agreed, agreed. But the thing is this. You know, it's really best to avoid commenting on people's appearances. Unless it's positive. Yeah. Unless Joey, it's looking positive. looking good like that blue. There you That's right. right. Unless it's positive because... When you do say things like that, we most of us automatically go to the negative. Mm. Whether that's meant that way right. or not, that's how we, we perceive it ourselves. Yeah. So next time you can just say, wow, you, you're looking really good, even though you might look a little tired. Your hair it's looks okay. good, Sal, all yeah. I'm going to say. <laughs> go, girl. <laughs> and then something else is, and I think everyone is guilty of saying, well, that's just not fair. Well, you know, there is the fallacy of fairness. There ain't none. Mm -hmm. It's all what we place our judgment call on, whether we think it's fair or it's not fair. And, you know, now if you're calling out major discrimination that might be of of a legal or ethical sense, Mm -hmm. now that's one thing. But if I don't like the way you just said something to me, and you want me to do something, I say, well, that's not fair. Why why doesn't Troy have to do that? Mm -hmm. Well, in reality... That's really not a good thing to say. You know, so you just want to pick your battles very carefully when you're saying things like that. Now, you ever say, it's always or never? Those are absolutes. And, Try and that just to can't... stay away from absolutes. Absolutely. It's tough, though. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you always do that, Joe. Gosh. Because, Every you know, time. sometimes that, well, you never do this, yeah. or you're always doing it. I mean, I don't know how many times I, I would have you know, well, just discussions, I'll say, with my husband. You always say that. And I go, well, no, that's not true. He doesn't always say that. (laughs) I mean, so, you know, we need to, now, if it's something that really hurts your feelings, the really good thing for everyone involved is to be able to say, you know, when you said that to me, it did hurt my feelings. Mm -hmm. And that way, because maybe the individual talking with you was just kind of, you know, throwing Mm -hmm. it off the top of their head but if you just address it in a very nice way, you know. Oh, not me. I'd probably I say, be really, really. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm famous for saying eighty percent of the time you do this. Well, <laughs> but at least you're not saying always. Always. Yeah. So sixty-eight point two percent of the time it happens this way. Never say that, Joe. <laughs> but you know, we can always say that when it, we're addressing other people's what we perceive bad or negative behavior. Mm-hmm. But when someone says it to us, well, mm, right. how that mm-hmm. goes over. Calm so, down, Sal. Calm down. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then the last thing is, cheer up. It's all going to get better. Now, oh. we're all guilty of saying that, mm-hmm. too, to people. Yeah. And the thing about that is maybe they just really don't want to cheer up. Maybe that person just needs to kind of go through feeling you know, sorry for mm-hmm. themselves or feeling badly about a situation. So rather than doing that, why don't you just say, well, we're just here to help, or I'm here to help if I can be of any help to you. Here if you need me. Always. That's it. That's Always. it. Always <laughs> or never. <laughs> Everybody calm down. Yeah. There you yeah, go. Because y'all look tired. Yes, that's it. All the time. That's it's not right. fair. So cheer up. There okay. you go. I got you them got all it. out now. Maybe I won't use them again in 2019. Yeah, all right. Go. Got my list. Hope you, you jotted those down too. All right. More to come. As we do in every episode, we like to honor a hero. In today's episode, our hero is Stephen Green. Stephen passed away on March 11th, 2017, at our Lady of the Lake Regional Medical Center in Baton Rouge. He was 35. 
He was a native and resident of Denham Springs. He was very giving, funny, and caring. He never hurt anyone. We will miss him greatly. And now we pause to say thank you to Stephen for the gift of life. In our question and answer segment today, we're going to keep Dr. Seal here because I think he's the best one to answer it, right? Why not? (laughs) He is the perfect one for this. Doc, the question that came in was, how does someone get listed for a transplant? Right. That's a, that's a great question, and it covers a lot of ground. So you can be listed for a number of different types of organs, heart, liver, lung, kidneys, pancreas, uh, intestine, correct? Um, and so for each of those organ transplants, there's a set of indications or reasons to get that transplant. And that evaluation starts usually with your primary care doctor. And if you have a medical condition that affects uh, one of those organs, then you'll probably be referred to a specialist. And that specialist will conduct some uh, further testing and determine whether there's really an issue of end organ failure. And if that is the case, then you can go through a process of being evaluated for transplant. And that's a pretty robust process where we look at each potential candidate from a lot of different angles. And ultimately, we want to ask the question, are there more benefits from transplant than there are risks? And if the answer is yes, then it goes through a committee evaluation at a particular transplant center. And then you get listed through a national organization to be on the wait list. Okay, thank you so much. That was some wonderful information to share with our listeners. And if you happen to have a story or a question that you would want for us to answer, uh, you can find us on social media, email at info at thegiftedlife.org. Or remember, you can always give us a call, 504-648-3477. And that'll do it for this episode of The Gifted Life, number 101, guys. It was a unique one, too. Yes, it was. We thank Brittany Elliser and Dr. John Seal for joining us in studio and talking about the two different perspectives of such a unique case. First, you have the medical team Mm -hmm. perspective of how they navigated the challenges, and then, of course, the mother's perspective during that same time. Now, we're going to continue this story on the next episode of The Gifted Life. That'll be number 102. We bring in Briggs's donor family, one of his donor families, to The Gifted Life, Mike. So you won't want to miss that, the hero perspective. Or if you'd like to know more about their story or maybe more information, you can always follow us on social media. And hey, did we inspire you today to sign up? to be a donor, registerme.org. Registerme.org just takes a couple of seconds and you can help make life happen. We certainly appreciate you listening and we hope that you go out and do something that you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. Thanks for listening. This is a production of the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreaux, and Sally Gentry. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. <laughs>